We're going to go ahead and begin with a word of prayer, and then if you have your Bibles, you may want to open them up to Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 57. Relatively few verses today, but verses of great significance in terms of the events that we've been celebrating and uh, commemorating as Christians for 2,000 years. But let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer and ask God's blessing on our time together. O Lord, thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thy known image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. We are in Matthew chapter 27, as I said, beginning at verse 57. We are celebrating or actually studying the, the last significant events of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. Last week, we took a look at the crucifixion, Jesus' death, his vicarious atonement on our behalf. Today, we're going to take a look at an event that we often skip over but an event that nevertheless, as we are going to see, is quite significant, and that is the burial of Jesus Christ. So Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away, and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. As I said as I was introducing today's study, the events of Jesus' burial are events that we have a tendency to overlook. We have a tendency to focus on the events of Good Friday, and rightly so. Uh, the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf is one of the most significant events in all of history, along with the resurrection itself. And it's right that we should commemorate the Lord's death. We sing that great hymn, In the Cross of Christ I Glory. Uh, the cross is the symbol of our hope. It is the symbol of our salvation. Jesus' death on our behalf is one of the two most significant events in the history of the world, along with his Easter victory. So it's right that we should focus on the events of Good Friday. And it's right, of course, that we should immediately go to the events of the resurrection, because Jesus' Easter victory is the seal upon his Good Friday work. It is the assurance that the price that he paid for our sin has indeed been accepted by the Father. And it is the assurance that you and I can have life beyond the grave, that the grave is not the final chapter in the story of our lives. 
It is just the beginning, really. It is a portal, if you will, to the life Elysium. So these two events are of the utmost significance. And we are a people of Good Friday. We are a people of Easter. And so it's understandable that we tend to focus on Good Friday and the resurrection. And oftentimes we gloss over what is commonly referred to as Holy Saturday. In fact, you probably noticed that we don't even have a service uh, on Holy Saturday. We do have some baptisms from time to time, but most churches really don't even have a service on that day because that's the day when Jesus was resting in the tomb, when his body was there in the tomb. There was no activity, if you will, at least from a worldly point of view. It's the day where we take the church and get it ready for Easter. So we go from that the church being stripped on Good Friday, and then you walk in uh, three days later or on that third day on Easter, and all of a sudden the church is a profusion of flowers and color, and there's brass and music, and it's a magnificent thing. But we skip over that day in between, the day between his death and his glorious resurrection. But what is interesting is that this was a significant event. It is an event that was recorded by all four of the Gospels. Even though you and I have a tendency to skip over Holy Saturday, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not. They actually gave a significant amount of time and space to the recording of this event, Jesus' burial in the tomb. So it's recorded by all four of the Gospels, which tells us it is significant. It's also one of the events that the Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, described as being of first importance. Now think about that. He refers to the burial of Jesus Christ as being a matter of first importance. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for just a moment. And let me give you a little bit of background about this first letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, the church in Corinth was one of the churches that the Apostle Paul had founded. I sometimes refer to it as Paul's problem child. Uh, it was a church that struggled. It was an affluent community, and there was a great deal of pressure from the surrounding culture for these Christians to fall back into old practices and old beliefs. And Paul wrote two letters to this church really uh, to be a correction for them, to remind them of what had been taught to them, and to remind them to turn away, to turn their back on the world and remain true to their first love, which is Jesus Christ. And one of the problems in the Corinthian church in the first century was that many of the people were beginning to lose their confidence in the resurrection. Now, when I say they begin to lose their confidence in the resurrection, I'm not talking about them losing their confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Corinthians definitely believed that Jesus had been crucified and that he was bodily, physically raised from the dead. What they were losing their confidence in, and that was because of all of the pressure to conform by the world around them, they were losing their confidence in their own resurrection that there was going to be a physical bodily resurrection for them at the end of the age. You see, there was a Greek philosophy that was beginning at this point to percolate and permeate some of the Christian communities. It was known as Gnosticism. That's a Greek word that simply means knowledge. And many people within that Greco-Roman culture were beginning to believe that anything that was physical, anything that was matter, was evil and wicked. And it's the spiritual that matters. And so they didn't have a great deal of regard, for example, for the body. 
they cremated bodies, for example. Uh, the early Jews, the early Christians did not. Uh, they buried bodies. They buried bodies because they believed in the hope of the resurrection. And this was a testimony to their belief that one day the dead would be raised. The Jews believed at the end of the age, at the end of the world, God would raise all the just. And Christians believed that everyone who was in Christ would ultimately be raised. And that was the gospel that Paul had proclaimed to those Corinthians. But it was a belief that was beginning to wane within this Christian community. And so Paul wrote these words, as I said, to be a corrective. And listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at the first verse. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. You'll recall that the word gospel, evangelion, means good news, glad tidings. Paul says, don't forget the good news that I proclaimed to you. And what was that good news? It's a good news which you have received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he goes on to tell us in detail what that good news was. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also believed, that Christ died for our sins, a vicarious atonement, Christ in our place, paying the price that you and I deserve to pay but could not pay. As the old saying goes, he paid, a, he paid a debt he didn't know because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. That's what Paul is saying Christ did. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This was part of God's plan from the beginning of creation. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, if you skip ahead just a little bit to verse 12, Paul then, having laid that foundation, says this to the Corinthians. He said, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, that's the key. If our hope is only for this life, he says, then we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul says this belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, burial included, is a matter of first importance. Everything is built upon that, Paul says, and if you pull that out, all of Christianity falls apart in wreck and ruin. That's what he's saying. It's a matter of first importance, the death, but also the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So even though we have a tendency, as I said, to skip over the burial, Paul nevertheless, like the gospel writers, emphasizes that this is a matter of great importance. And you'll also notice that every time we stand up in church, whether it's a service of morning prayer or a service of Holy Communion, we profess our faith in the words of one of the ancient creeds, either the Apostle or the Nicene Creed. And in both of those creeds, there is a reference to the burial, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and buried. Crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected. 
Now, we pause going back here to Matthew again and ask the question, what is the significance of the burial? The gospel writers record it. Perhaps they record it simply because it was an, an act of history. And they, of course, are giving us a detailed account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and this was something that happened to him. But why does Paul emphasize this? Why do the early church fathers emphasize it in the creeds? What is the significance of the burial of Jesus Christ? Well, I want to suggest to you three things today, three reasons why the burial, Jesus' body being laid in the tomb, is of significance to you and to me and to our faith. The first reason is because it is the evidence that Jesus Christ was really dead. I mean, tricky thing about a resurrection, somebody has to die first. So while it is the tendency sometimes to rush to the resurrection, in fact, one of the things that I've noticed is that many churches will have Palm Sunday and an Easter service, but no Good Friday service. And maybe that's because we're living in a time and we're living in a culture in which people don't like to think about death. They don't like to think about the dismal prospect of suffering. And so we want to skip right ahead to the resurrection, to this happy and joyous occasion. But again, tricky thing about a resurrection, somebody has to die first. And without Jesus' death, the resurrection, quite frankly, is meaningless. Because the resurrection, as I said, is the seal upon what Jesus did. It is the seal. It is the evidence that his work upon the cross was actually accepted by the Father. So it's really important that we understand that Jesus did, in fact, physically die. Now, in the early part of the 20th century, there were many people. This was an age of skepticism, um, children of the Enlightenment, um, the 18th, 19th, and early part of the 20th century, many people were skeptical about such things, particularly miracles. Now, you'll recall that C.S. Lewis, back in the, the 50s and the 60s, talked a great deal and wrote a great deal about miracles, even wrote a little volume entitled Miracles, because he was living in a culture in which people were skeptical of that sort of thing. And many people tried to come up with explanations as to why the tomb was buried, uh, was empty. Incidentally, I think this is one of the more fascinating things about the biblical accounts of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Nobody, nobody seems to dispute the fact that the tomb was empty. Even those who deny the fact that the resurrection was something that could have taken place, even those who insist that, that people do not come back from the dead, nevertheless are faced with the smoking gun of the empty tomb. The body of Jesus Christ was never produced. Now, if in fact Jesus never did rise from the dead, then the best thing that the Romans could have done, the best thing that the Jewish religious leaders could have done was produce the body. The one thing they did not want was for this belief. In fact, in today's gospel lesson, it's described as a fraud. That's the way the Jewish religious leaders describe it. They want a guard to be posted at the tomb. Why? Because they're fearful that the disciples will come steal the body, although we're going to see that's not actually what they were fearful of, but that's what they said to Pontius Pilate. They were fearful that the, Jew, that the disciples would come steal the body and perpetuate this falsehood that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And this whole message of the gospel would get out of hand. That's what they were fearful of. 
Now, if they had taken the body or if they had access to the body, the easiest thing for them to do was to produce the body and it would put all of these rumors to rest. But what is interesting is that they never did. And ever since that, skeptics have tried to explain why the body was never produced. Why was that tomb empty? And one of the dominant theories that was put forward in the early part of the 20th century was something that was known as the swoon theory. The swoon theory basically says that what happened was that Jesus was crucified along with the two robbers, that he suffered greatly. Now, we all know that he suffered greatly at the hands of the Roman soldiers even before he made it to Calvary, even before the crucifixion itself. And what the swoon theory basically says was that Jesus suffered a great loss of blood. He was extremely weak. Up there on the cross, he swooned. He basically passed out. His pulse rate dropped to a, a very low point, and people assumed that he was dead. But then his body was taken down from the cross, laid in the tomb, and in that cold, dark environment, he revived. And he appeared to his disciples as though he had died and was alive again, and this is what started the rumors of the resurrection. Now, that was one of the dominant theories that was given by rationalists in the early part of the 20th century to explain the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what's interesting is that many people believed it. Now, I think it's the most absurd explanation imaginable. I mean, everybody in the first century knew how brutal the Romans could be. And let me tell you something, Roman soldiers knew how to kill people. In fact, one of the Roman soldiers certified the death of Jesus by plunging that spear into his side. But for some people, any explanation is better than a supernatural explanation. And that's why the burial of Jesus Christ is so significant. It tells us that Jesus really was dead. His lifeless and limp body was taken down from the cross, laid in the tomb, and he was dead. Completely dead. The second reason why the burial of Jesus Christ is significant is because it's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. One of the most powerful pictures of Jesus Christ and his suffering on our behalf is found not in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. Turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 53. You're familiar with this passage. It's what's commonly referred to as the suffering servant. Now, Isaiah wrote these words. I want you to think about this. Isaiah wrote these words hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, let alone died. And yet the picture that we have here in these verses are as clear as they could possibly be. It's a picture of Christ, the one who hundreds of years later would mount the arms of the cross and pay the price for the sins of the whole world. And look at what it says. We'll just go ahead and read through uh, the first nine verses. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But, and here's Good Friday, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. That is a picture of vicarious atonement. One person suffering in the place of another. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. You remember Jesus standing before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate and Pilate saying to him, won't you give some kind of a defense? Don't you realize I have the power to release you or to condemn you? He was like a sheep, silent before its shearers. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, the judgment of the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And here it is, verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So the burial of Jesus Christ is significant because it is the proof, the evidence that Jesus was really dead, and he had to be really dead in order for there to be a real resurrection, the cornerstone, the keystone of our faith. And the second reason why it's important is because the prophet Isaiah said it was going to take place. He would make a grave among the wicked in the tomb of a rich man. But the real significance of the burial of Jesus Christ is theological. It's theological. It symbolizes the depths to which Jesus Christ went in order to save us. I pointed out last week when we were looking at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that it is the tendency of human beings and the tendency, I think, of people living in our day and age, in which we are obsessed with gratuitous violence, to focus on the physical suffering of Jesus Christ. You think about that movie the, that um, was put out some years ago called The Passion of the Christ. And if you've seen that, there's a great deal of violence, a great deal of blood in that movie. And it's probably an accurate depiction, to be perfectly honest with you, as to what Roman soldiers did to prisoners and what crucifixion was really like. It was a terrible thing. And yet the physical suffering of Jesus Christ was mild compared to the spiritual suffering that he endured. At that moment in history, he became a curse for the whole world. He suffered the, the damnation of the whole world in his own person. And for the first time, he felt separated from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That gives you a real sense, at least the beginning of a sense, of just how much Christ had to endure for us. And his burial also gives us some insight into that. When we think of the grave as Christians today, the grave is not a particularly happy thought. But as Christians, we're not necessarily fearful of the grave. It doesn't mean we look forward to it. But we realize the grave is not the end. As I said, it is a portal to the life Elysium. But it's interesting, in the Old Testament, in those centuries leading up to the arrival of the Savior, 
the grave was always viewed with dread, with anxiety. It's pictured in the Old Testament as gloomy, as dismal. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, death is described as something that coils around us. The cords of the grave, the author says, coiled around me. In Psalm 116, the author speaks of the snares of death and the pangs of Sheol. In Job chapter 10, death is described as a land of darkness and a land of shadow. That's how the ancients understood death. The psalmist, as I said, refers to the pangs of Sheol. Sheol was a Hebrew word. The equivalent in Greek would be Hades. Now, if you know anything about Greek literature, uh, you recall that Hades was the underworld. It was a dark and gloomy place. It was the abode of the dead. The Hebrews had a, a somewhat different understanding of it, but it was, again, a dark and gloomy place. It was a place where disembodied spirits dwelt. It was a place where they were conscious, but there wasn't a great deal of activity. They were waiting for deliverance the abode of the dead. Well, remember, Matthew's is a Jewish gospel. When it says that Jesus was buried, it means that Jesus went to that place, to that gloomy and dark place. And he did all of that on our behalf. Uh, incidentally, this is what is meant in the Apostles' Creed when we say, died, buried, and descended into hell. That's what's being described in that one little line. Many people ask about that. What does that mean that Jesus descended into hell? It's what it means here. It means that he descended into the dead, into that place, that gloomy and dark place where one goes apart from God. So the significance of Jesus' death is that it tells us he really died. And because he really died, there is the hope of a real resurrection. It fulfills Old Testament prophecy. It tells us that this was not a tragic accident. It was all part of God's plan from the very beginning. As you've heard me say many times before, there's no plan B. This was part of God's plan A, foretold centuries in advance. And it assures us that Christ went to the lowest place that believing in him, we might be raised to the highest place. So the burial of Jesus Christ is not an insignificant event. It is of the utmost importance. And it reinforces the hope that we have as Christians in his resurrection. Now, there's one other significance, one other significant aspect to this belief in the burial. And again, it comes from the Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 6, Paul emphasizes the fact that for those who are in Christ, sin no longer has control over our lives. Uh, one of the things that the Scriptures teach, and this is clear and unambiguous, is that every single one of us is enslaved to sin. Every single one of us is born with a sin nature. We're all OS positive. We're original sin positive. And it is part of our fallenness to walk apart from God. I'm going to talk about this in the sermon this Sunday. It is our tendency to walk apart from God. 
And that's because sin controls us. It has a power over us. The Apostle Paul talks about this. He says, the very things I want to do, I do not do. And the very things I hate, these are the things that I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? How many of you can relate to that? How many of you have ever had that experience in your life where there are certain things you want to do, you're desperate to do them, but lo and behold, you feel as though you're, you're constrained. There's a power over you that tries you might, you cannot break free from it. And you end up doing the things you hate and you fail to do the things you long to do. How many of you have ever had that experience in your life? That's what it means to be under the power of sin. And that's why Paul says, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is so significant. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's what many people in the Roman church were arguing. Well, if Christ's grace is greater than our sin, perhaps we ought to sin all the more that his grace may abound all the more. But he says, by no means, how can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. We were buried with Christ in his death. What does Paul mean? Well, think about it. When someone dies, as long as the body is there, there is still a sense in which they are with us. I can't tell you the number of people who have told me that they don't want to hold off on a funeral for very long. They want to have that kind of closure. And oftentimes it is the case that the closure comes not when the funeral takes place, but when the burial takes place. As long as the body is with us, there is a sense in which the person is with us. But when the body is put in the ground and the dirt is put on it, then the deed is done, as it were. There is that sense of closure. It is over with. Well, that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that just as Jesus died and was buried, the suffering, the pain was finished. So what he's saying to us is that we have been buried with Christ. The reason why we cannot continue to sin is because it's over and done with. It's done and dusted, as it were. We have been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. To continue to sin, Paul says, is like going back and digging up a corpse. So it's interesting. He emphasizes here the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it really is a significant event. It's filled with symbolic importance for you and for me. Now, the details of the event itself are interesting. We're introduced to a number of very important people here. And the first person that we are introduced to when it comes to the burial of Jesus Christ, this significant event, is this man, Joseph. We read in verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea is one of the most significant people in these latter moments of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But what is interesting is that he makes a relatively brief appearance in the Gospels. In fact, this is the only mention that we have of Joseph of Arimathea. We don't hear anything about him up to this point in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. 
and we don't hear anything else about him after this point. He's sort of a quiet witness. And yet the Gospels, as they speak about the burial of Jesus Christ, in reference to Joseph of Arimathea, tell us a number of very important things about him. Matthew, for example, in that very first verse, verse 57, says that he was a disciple of Jesus. Now, that's significant, because where were the other disciples of Jesus? Now, in this particular instance, a disciple simply means a follower. We're not talking about the 12. But where were the other followers of Jesus? Peter and Andrew, James and John, all of those men had run away. They had deserted. But there is at least a small gathering of people who were still following Jesus, not just up to Calvary, but from Calvary even down to the tomb. And one of those men was this man, Joseph of Arimathea. I think that's really important because there are many people out there in the world today who are followers of Jesus Christ. They're not well known, but they're faithfully following him. They are a quiet but faithful witness, and Joseph of Arimathea might as well be their patron saint. He's a disciple of Jesus Christ. Mark, in his gospel, tells us that he was a respected member of the council. Now, what council is being referred to here? This would have been the Sanhedrin. This would have been the highest body of authority within Judaism. This was the very body that condemned Jesus to death. And we're told that he was a respected member of the council. Luke, in his gospel in chapter 23, says he was a member of the council, but he did not consent to their action. And Mark, in chapter 15, says that he was courageous. He mustered his courage, and he went to Pontius Pilate and requested the body of Jesus Christ. Now, why did he need to muster his courage? Because normally, those who were crucified because crucifixion was reserved only for the worst of the worst, the worst crimes. And the crime that Jesus had committed was to claim to be a king when there was to be no king but Caesar. When people were crucified, they were not given the honor of being buried. Their bodies were normally taken and thrown into a pit to be devoured by wild animals. So it took some courage the gospel writer says, for Joseph of Arimathea to go to, G to Pilate and request the body of Jesus. And here's something else we learn about him. In John chapter 19, we learn he wasn't alone. Apparently, there was one other person who went with him and assisted him in the burial of Jesus, and that was Nicodemus, the same Nicodemus that we encounter at the beginning of the gospel of John in chapter 3. That Pharisee, that member of the ruling council who came by night and wanted to meet Jesus and who acknowledged that Jesus was indeed a man who had been sent from God. Now, as I said, Joseph of Arimathea appears for only a brief period of time in the Scriptures. This is the only reference to him that we are going to find anywhere in the New Testament. And yet, look at this man. He's a disciple of Jesus. He's a member of the council, but he doesn't approve of their action. Listen, folks, that took courage. These men were out for blood. They were willing to trump up charges against Jesus. They had no legitimate charge to bring against him, but they were determined to have his blood. 
and anybody that got in their way was going to be steamrolled. And yet there was one man who was willing to stand up and defend the innocent, who would not consent to their actions. He was courageous. I have a feeling that because of what he did, because of his actions, not just in caring for Jesus' body, but in standing up for Jesus against his other members of the council, I suspect that Joseph of Arimathea, again, we don't know, but I suspect he paid a very high price for that kind of loyalty. The scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they were willing to lie, they were willing to deceive, they were willing to do whatever it took in order to get rid of Jesus. And they were willing to destroy anyone who got in their way. I suspect that after these events, Joseph of Arimathea was no longer a respected member of the council. I don't know exactly what happened to him, but I suspect that he was persona non grata to those who had been his friends. He's a reminder that there are many people out there who are quiet, faithful followers of Jesus Christ. They're not well known, but they are nevertheless willing to put their necks on the line for the sake of the truth. They realize that to follow Christ means to take up the cross. They realize that it is in dying to self that they are reborn to eternal life. Joseph of Arimathea represents, at the very least, the price of discipleship and the true cost of following Jesus. Just by way of a commercial, that's what the sermon is going to be about this Sunday. We're going to talk about the cost of discipleship, the price of being one of Christ's followers. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 said, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying there are many people out there in the world who claim to be his followers, but they're not real disciples. Joseph of Arimathea, not well known. He doesn't appear like Paul does in the New Testament or Peter does, but he was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ who was willing to pay the price for that discipleship. Well, there's another element of this story. Again, it's fraught with um, peril. It's filled with theological significance, but it's also told in a pretty straightforward way, just as it unfolded. And we have Joseph of Arimathea. We also have the scribes and the Pharisees. You would have thought by this point they were done with Jesus. They had accomplished their goal. They had made sure that he was dead, but they were still fearful. Isn't that interesting? They, from a worldly point of view, had triumphed over Jesus. He was dead. What more could they do to him? And yet they were still fearful of him, still fearful of Christ. Verse 62, the next day, that is the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will arise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. They were still fearful. I suspect at this point Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, thought that he was done with this whole sorry mess. 
Remember, there was something about Jesus Christ that impressed him. He was uh, attracted to Christ. He did his best to have Christ released. He admitted he had found no fault with Christ. He'd made him a production about washing his hands and saying that Christ was innocent. He really didn't want to have anything to do with this. His wife had had a dream and had warned him not to have anything to do with this. He must have thought that he was done with this whole sorry affair. And yet here they were the next day before him again. These people who had forced his hand, who had caused him to do something that was really against his conscience. And I suspect when they showed up again, now you can't really tell this, but you have to use your imagination a little bit. I think by the exchange that takes place between Pilate and the Jewish religious leaders, he is regarding them at this point with scorn and disgust. They want the tomb made secure. Why? Because they say they are fearful his disciples will come and steal away the body, tell the people, and perpetuate a falsehood that he has been raised from the dead. They realized that Jesus had started a wildfire. And try as they might, as to try as they might to stamp it out, the only thing they were succeeding in doing was spreading it. And that was the last thing they wanted. And so they came to him and they said, this imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure. It's interesting, isn't it? The reason why they come to Pilate and want a guard to make the tomb secure is because they said Jesus had claimed that he would die and three days later rise again. You know what that was? That was an admission of guilt. And I wonder if Pontius Pilate recognized it. Because if you skip back, just turn back one chapter to chapter 26, to verse 57, you will recall that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and taken before the high priest Caiaphas. And one of the charges brought against him was that he claimed that he was going to do what? destroy the temple, and three days later, raise it up. Verse 57, then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. They had no charge to bring against him. And Pilate at least to his credit, recognized that. They had no charge, but they found one, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, the charge that would ultimately get Jesus condemned and brought before the Roman governor was what? The charge that they were bringing was that Jesus claimed that he was going to destroy the temple, this magnificent building that symbolized God's presence in his people. It was the most sacred site to Jews in all the world, and here was a man who claimed that he was going to destroy it. Just a week ago, we saw our own Capitol building defiled as people went in there, attacked this citadel of democracy, and we were all appalled by that. 
Well, the Jews would have been even more appalled by somebody who said he would tear down the temple. That was the charge. And yet it was a false charge. Jesus never said that he was going to destroy the temple. The temple that he was referring to was his body, but that wasn't what they said when they brought the charges against Jesus. And yet here we are just a few days later, and they're before Pontius Pilate requesting a guard. Why? Because Jesus said he was going to tear down the temple and rebuild it. But this time they acknowledged the fact that the temple he was referring to was not the building in Jerusalem. It was his own body. It just goes to show us how duplicitous, how evil these people really were. And I think that Pilate saw right through the charade. I think you see that by his response. Verse 64, they say, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, and the question is, how did he say this? Did he simply acquiesce to their request? Did he simply say, you have a guard of soldiers, I'll provide it, go and make it as secure as you can? Or did he say, and this is what Charles Haddon Spurgeon believed, or did he say, what? You have your own guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. You can almost imagine him laughing in their faces. <laughs> You want this man killed, he's been killed, he's been crucified, the worst possible death imaginable. His lifeless and limp body's been taken down, laid in a tomb, and you people are still afraid of him. And you want a guard? You've got your own guards. It was the temple guards that had arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's almost as though Pilate is saying, I'm not giving you any more guards. I've given you enough time, enough energy. You've got your own guards. If you're afraid of this man, go ahead, make the tomb secure. Do your best whatever you want. I think that's how Pilate responded to them. I think he saw right through their charade. But the thing that strikes me the most is that in spite of their best efforts, they were still fearful of Jesus. He still dominated their thoughts. He still dominated their actions. He was dominating the festival. Jesus was still looming large, even though he was dead. Let me tell you something. They weren't fearful of the disciples. I mean, the disciples, where were they? They'd all run away. The last thing the disciples were going to do was risk their own lives, their own necks, to steal the body of Jesus and perpetuate a falsehood. That's absolutely absurd, and the scribes and the Pharisees knew it. So what were they fearful of? I think they were fearful that it might actually happen. I think they were actually fearful that this one who had died might actually come back from the dead. Why were they fearful of that? Because they acknowledged the fact that Jesus was indeed a miracle worker. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, Jesus had been casting out demons, and everybody was amazed by that. It, it was a public thing that Jesus was doing. And the scribes and the Pharisees could not deny that something extraordinary was taking place. But do you remember how they explained it? They said that this man casts out Beelzebub because he is filled with Beelzebub. In other words, they acknowledged the fact that he was a miracle worker, but they had to come up with some explanation as to why he could do miracles. But those who were honest 
those who looked at things objectively recognized that Jesus was indeed someone unique. One of their number, Nicodemus, who we've just encountered. Nicodemus, at the very beginning, acknowledged that Jesus was a worker of wonders. And he came, sure, under the cover of darkness, fearful, but he came under the cover of darkness. And the first words out of his mouth when Jesus opened the door were these, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do the things that you are doing unless God were with him. I think these men were just a little bit afraid, in spite of their best efforts, that that one who had been drained of his lifeblood might actually, by some miraculous means, come back from the dead. And so they were going to do everything they could to make sure that didn't happen. They were going to make sure, if they could, that that tomb would not be opened. They were going to seal it. They were going to guard it. They were going to be secure and make sure that they would never have to face Jesus Christ again. To borrow a phrase from Robert Burns, the Scottish poet, it was the best laid plans of mice and men. Because you turn one page in your Bible to chapter 28, verse 1, and you read these words. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Think about that. Trying to keep the Son of God under lock and key. That's what they wanted to do as if you can somehow put God in a box. You know, there was someone else who tried to do that. A few years later, after the events that are described here at the end of Matthew's gospel, there was a very prominent rabbi, a young man. He showed great promise. He was very influential. He trained under one of the foremost leaders and teachers of the day, a man by the name of Gamaliel. And he became greatly concerned because this Jesus, who had been laid in the tomb, was purported to be alive again. And his movement was growing. It's one of the things that I point out is one of the greatest evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There were over 100 messianic movements in the years leading up to the end of the first century. And every one of those messianic movements came to a terrible end. It came to a terrible end because the Romans knew how to deal with messianic movements. You kill the Messiah. You cut off the head and the, the movement, the body dies. The Jesus movement of the first century was the only messianic movement of the first century in which they killed the Messiah and the movement continued to grow. And it was growing so much that this young rabbi wanted to secure it, just like those rabbis, those Pharisees, a few years before had tried to secure Jesus in the tomb. They wanted to, he wanted to secure the movement. His name was Saul. He was from a city called Tarsus. And he wanted to secure the Jesus movement for two reasons. One, he wanted to secure Judaism as he understood it. 
this religion of laws and regulations and following the rules. And the second reason he wanted to secure the Jesus movement, he wanted to secure Christ as his forebears had done, is because he was feeling threatened. It wasn't just that his religion was being threatened. He himself felt threatened. He acknowledged the fact that he was being pricked in his conscience. He was kicking against the goads. But try as he might to stamp out Jesus Christ, to lock him away in a tomb, he could not do it. And one day, while on the road to Damascus, that Jesus Christ burst forth. He burst forth as he burst forth on that first Easter from the spiced tomb, and he appeared to Saul of Tarsus, and he confronted him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul, I think, anticipating what was coming next, said, sir, who are you? And the answer came back, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul discovered you can't lock Jesus Christ away. You can't put him in the tomb. He will not stay there. He will come forth. And Saul surrendered to that Jesus Christ. Well, there are many people today who want to do just what the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to do, who are trying to do what the Apostle Paul did prior to his conversion on the road to Damascus. They are trying to secure themselves against Christ and the power of his resurrection in their lives. You can do it any number of ways. One of the ways that you can try to secure yourself against Christ in your life is by activity. And many people out there in the world today are just busy. We live in a busy age. You ever notice that? And by all of our busyness with our cell phones and our computers and our Twitter accounts, we get so active that we, we forget about Christ. We discover that we have no time to read the Bible, no time to attend church. I'll be honest with you, it's one of the great fears that I have about this whole live streaming thing. They say that it only takes three months for people to get into a habit. Well, we've been at this for almost a year. It'll be very easy for people to get into the habit when the, when, the, when the sun's not shining and the rain is coming down to say, well, we don't need to go to church today. We can just watch it. Now, of course, the technology is a wonderful thing during the midst of this pandemic, but I wonder what it's going to look like on the other side. You see, we can get into those habits. We can become so active that we can try to secure ourselves against Christ. You can fill your life with sin. Many people do that as well. Go their own way, do their own thing, masters of their own fate, captains of their own destiny. And in so doing, think that they can secure themselves against Christ. You can become someone who tries to secure yourself against Christ by being religious, by being enthralled with all of the trappings of religion, by listening to the music and the pomp and the ceremony without actually taking note of the word that's being spoken or the one who's being proclaimed. That's one of the things that I noticed, not just at this inauguration. I don't want you to think this is a political statement because it is not a political statement. But it's one of the things that I noticed at this inauguration and at previous inaugurations, that there is a form of civil religion that we have. Did you notice that? I'm sure it's something that would be very bizarre to people living in Europe, except in places like England 
where they have a state religion. But in places like France, which are secular states, I think it would be very odd for them to see a president inaugurated and the trappings of religion associated with that. We had an invocation, we had a benediction, although the benediction was in the name of our common faith. But we have the trappings of religion. But let's be honest, we are a people who have turned our backs on God. Like Paul says to Timothy, we have the form of religion, but we deny its power. And that's the way it is with many people in their lives. They're religious, and they think they've secured themselves against Christ and the demands that he makes upon their lives. But let me tell you something, you can't put Christ in the tomb. You can busy yourself and think that he's not calling out to you. You can fill your life with all kinds of sinful activity and think that you've escaped him. You can become religious and think that you've somehow domesticated him, but sooner or later, Christ will break the seal. The stone will be rolled back and the Lord of glory will proceed. And he will call to you as he called to Paul. And the question is, Will we follow him? If the burial of Jesus Christ teaches us anything at all, it teaches us that you can't keep that man down. Sooner or later, the whole world must face up to Jesus Christ. Paul says, one day every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God grant that like the Apostle Paul, we might fall on our knees. And we might say, as Paul must have said, as John Newton certainly said, I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. God grant that we might receive Jesus Christ, crucified for our sake, buried but raised again for our justification. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the death, the burial, and the glorious resurrection of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. You can't keep Christ in the tomb. You can't keep him under lock and key. He is the Lord of glory. Not even death could hold him. Grant us the grace to bow our knee to him, our Savior and our Lord, that we, having been buried with him, might be raised with him to live with you forever in that place where there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sighing, but life everlasting, where you yourself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. For it's in the name of the crucified and risen Jesus that we pray. Amen.